Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the patriarchal narratives, right? So we are in the period of the patriarchs, the formative period of the family, the clan, that will eventually become, of course, the people Israel. Um, the patriarchal narratives and the, the narratives of the matriarchs you know, our mythic traditions, we can assume have been whittled down to this. We can assume there's lots of material that did not survive and did not come down to us. Um, if you think, we've said this before, but I'll just remind us that if we think about the Isaac material in particular, we have lots of Abraham, Sarah material. We think the Sarah material for sure got cut down, that originally it was a pedimento of kind of goddess, you know, imagery that was Sarah. Um, and that's gotten kind of whittled down into now Sarah, partner of Avraham. Um, so the Avraham-Sarah material, we still have a good bit. If you look at the Jacob material, we have a good bit. The Isaac material did not really survive as its own. You know, the folk who were telling those stories about the patriarch Isaac, those stories really <laughs> didn't flourish. That, that part of our people didn't flourish. We didn't get a lot of the Isaac narratives. Um, if you look at the final redaction, the final editing of Torah, you know, perhaps that in itself is a commentary on the patriarch, right? That after the Akedah, pretty much, what is there of Isaac? You know, right, that that's its own, the absence of material is already saying something about the character Isaac. That, that moment of trauma obliterated, in a way, the future that Isaac might have had had he not suffered that trauma. Um, so lots of readings of, of this material um, focuses, as we did last week, on the trauma of Isaac. Um, and so we're now uh, moving into the uh, Yaakov uh, Esav material, right? So the, the birth, we're getting the birth of um, Yaakov and Esav. So we, whenever we talk about Yaakov, we're talking about two things. Whenever we have Yaakov, we also are talking what? Israel. That is not simply a name change, right? That is not simply he has two names, right? Whenever we're talking Yaakov, we're talking the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. When we talk about Asaph, we are talking about whom? Yes, a branch. We are talking about Edom. The Edomites. So these are not only narratives about our mythic ancestors and what that means for us as their descendants, like how we identify ourselves. It is also the story put in narrative form of Israel, and in this case, Edom, right? So these narratives, by looking at the interaction of the characters, can tell us a lot about the historical period in which they were written, right? Because we know from the record when the Edomites were allies of early Israel and when they were enemies, right? That we know from the archeological record, from war, invasions, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, so we can look at the times that they are 
you know, the brothers are at war and understand something about the, the time period we're talking about dealing with uh, Israel and Edom, the Edomites, yeah? If you stand um, in a certain place uh, in Israel and you look across the Dead Sea and you see Jordan, right, you can see a, a hunk, because it's far away, so it looks small, but I'm like, you can see this hunk of red. That is biblical Edom. How does one say red in Hebrew? Edom. Edom. So it's now part of Jordan? Is that who the Edomites became, or is that question really? I mean, it, that, that's, where they, that's where they last were. Okay. Remember when Rome destroys, or anybody else in the ancient world, destroys a people and wrecks its holy sites, and then builds Roman temples on those holy sites, and takes over and exiles the people, and brings in a new population, they're gone. The Edomites are gone. They, there is no Edomites, right? They don't, they don't become, they dissolve, right? Um, and that's, by the way, what happened to the Israelites. That's exactly what happened to the Israelites. It's the ex- same thing that happened to the Edomites. Rome came in, destroyed the, sac- the sacred precinct, put Roman temples there, right? Made it Rome, exiled the population, brought in a new population. Israelite religion, Israelite everything was obliterated, gone, just like the Edomites. Why, did it, why are we still here then? We're stiff necked. <laughs> Stories were stiff necked. Gam vigam. All of these. Did you say the religion was destroyed? Biblical Israelite religion was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The priesthood was destroyed. Sacrifice destroyed. It was all gone. Just like the Jebusites. Just like the Edomites. Just like all of them. Why are we still sitting in this room? Because they have an idea. Torah. Okay, but how, given that it was obliterated in Israel, how did that idea survive? How did, stories, how did it survive? Thank you, thank you. It went to In 586, before the Common Era, there was the first destruction of the temple, and Jews were exiled as we, just like with Rome, you don't want a rebellion on your hands. So you exile the population to Babylonia, they were given permission to come back. Most of the elite did not. They stayed in Babylonia. They stayed in New York. They didn't want to go back. Leave New York and go to the backwater Middle East? I don't think so. Look at us. Are we rushing to make Aliyah? No. We love it here in America, don't we? We get all the best of being Jews and being Americans and being free in a different way. So the Jews who were allowed to come back to Israel, many of them, the, the most intellectual, the ones most engaged and involved, the wealthiest, did not return. So when this was completely obliterated, this community was still thriving. So when biblical Israelite religion was destroyed, what was already going on? Torah study. Torah. Torah study was already going on in Babylonia in the academies. So they have, they have commentaries, right? Babylonian commentaries? Uh, of course. Yeah. All of 
the major Talmud, the major discussions happen in the Babylonian Talmud. So it wasn't the elite that was doing it, it was everybody and then they brought it back? It, it was written and codified in Babylonia. Right, but, but so then they brought that back to Israel when they were allowed to come back to, to Israel, no? Well, I mean, the, no, there was a Palestinian Talmud. There's a Palestinian Talmud, and there were academies developed when they were allowed to come back. Academies developed, but the, the major ones remained in Surah and Pumbedita in Babylonia. That stayed the center of Jewish learning. Was there much of a difference between Babylonian Torah and Palestinian Torah? Talmud. 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 Oh, Talmud. I mean, yeah, there are different groups of rabbis arguing about... The Talmud is... <clears throat> no. The Talmud is Mishnah... The, the Jewish law and all of the arguments surrounding the Mishnah, which is the Gomorrah. When you've got Mishnah and Gomorrah combined, that's the Talmud. So, does it. Commentary. So, it, it's arguments about the Mishnah and then stories, because it's an associative style of learning. They, if they're talking about a kosher sheep, when is a sheep kosher, when is it not? But when could you sacrifice the sheep? Speaking of sheep. <laughs> and then there'll be this whole story about sheep and, you know, a little lamb that got lost. I mean, like, it's just like, so it's, it's crazy. It's like you have to, like, take some kind of psychedelic drug to, like, follow a lot of the ways of the Talmud, which is really fun. If you have a, if you have a good Talmud teacher, it's just... We had a Talmud teacher that used to come in and we'd have the text, you know, the big, you know how big a Talmud is, right? So he would bring, he'd copy on the big paper the big things of Talmud that we were studying and we'd get to a story and then he'd say, he was a genius, and he'd say, and, oh, the goat. That reminds me. And then he'd pick a student and he'd say, go get me Tractate Shabbat 26A and B. The student would be rushed to the library and then go copy, and then they would dump that on the desk, and we would now be looking at a whole other tractate of Talmud that's talking about goats. Because it's here, then we got to look at the, I mean, it was just, it was crazy and amazing all at the same time. So, so it's not Torah. I mean, it, of course, a lot of the Mishnah finds its original laws in Torah, but it's not, it's concerning itself with the laws and then the, the stories related to those topics. I'm getting a little confused about chronology now. Uh, the uh, Mishnah predates Gemara. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mishnah is finally codified around 200 CE. Correct. Okay. Two to 300 CE. Yes. Then the Gemara is codified three to 400 years after that. So what are they? What are they doing in 586 BCE? They're not writing the Mishnah yet. In 586, they are discussing the laws of biblical but, Israelite but, practice. But who? Who is doing the discussing? The rabbis don't exist yet. Sure they do. Oh, okay, so we have rabbis. They Okay, so the rabbis. Scholars are. Okay, are, okay but if we think of, like, say, an Apirke vote and, and Bavimitsi at the very beginnings of the, of the Talmud, right. uh, a lot of that stuff is, uh, you know, Bar Kokhba and the people who sort of let the Jews who were in Palestine somehow survive the, the second destruction of the temple. Right. Right? And... So Akiva's I, already there. Akiva is, Akiva is where? In... Akiva's uh, part of Bar Kokhba. Right, so that's in, that's in, 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 in 
in Israel, not in in Babylon. Right. Right. And okay, so okay, so how did the so, so how did the two rabbinic traditions merge? Okay, so so first of all, the the thing to remember is that there's always been a tension between the priests and the lay people. There's always been a tension. Think of Isaiah. Is this the fast I want? Right? That you all do all this stuff and think, therefore, that you're in God's good graces when you behave terribly morally. There's always been a tension between the priests and folks who took you know, the ethical, moral part of the tradition seriously and were very critical. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That's early. The Pharisees become the rabbis. The Pharisees win the argument by default. Right? The Pharisees and their focus on the ethical monotheism of Torah, because they're not priests, when, when the priests are wiped out and the temple's wiped out, the Pharisees become the ones who are speaking on behalf of, of what's left. And they've already been developing their thinking about what that is. I want to ask you something. Was the written language exist in 586 BC or is it only? Yes. Yes. Cuneiform, right? So the earliest form of writing is the stylus in wet clay. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That it was not in paper or or, or anything like that. No, no, no. So it was mainly This is where they started writing it. It was an oral tradition, right? There might have been a copy, but then somebody, there were people who had, what is it, eidetic, what is that memory where, eidetic memory? So they had people like that who would be stationed in the room, and they would say, Shabbat 42a, and the person would recite. And then they would discuss. Printing presses. There's no printing until 1516. Ah. All right, we're being Jews. We're being Jews. So let's 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 regroup. So so I, I you know what's fascinating to me is that the some of the things that are kind of similar to ancient Judaism. Well, he was exposed yeah, that's what I'm saying. to Judaism. So it must have been, you know, it's got to be there Bar- way back Bar- when. Yeah. But he's late. Right, I know. He's 900. I mean, right. that's I late. Know, I know, but I mean, you know, it's still Six, it's, it's kind of there. But Quran is that early? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, 6, 7. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's late for us. Reuben, wait, Reuben's trying to say something. From a chronological point of view, yes. it's worth mentioning that the uh, Babylon, the, the Jewish center in, Bab- in Babylon, stayed continued. Correct. For for many many years. Correct. And were part of the uh, codification later on. Correct. Yeah. Yes. They theirs was an unbroken tradition because they didn't get sacked by Rome, right? They. Even though many people came back. But still the major but that yeah that the stayed the major center Babylon. correct. If the Mishnah codified the Jewish law uh, two hundred, mm-hmm. um, and then Maimonides again codified mm-hmm. that. Yeah, well, there's, uh, it changes a lot. 
It, there's a lot of things that change between 200 and when Maimonides is writing in 1100. A well, lot changes. I think Maimonides also felt that the Talmud was so huge and so difficult for the average person that it wasn't part of what Maimonides is doing trying to recondense yes. for like we mere mortals. Well, and, and he doesn't. Again with the and he doesn't care world. about the stories of sheep. Yeah. Right? You know, like. <laughs> You, you got if you hack off all the pieces that are agada that are tale and lore, you you cut down to the to the law itself, and so there's. Well, then it was done again when it done by Joseph Carroll again with the several times, right? Because because each again. community has what's normative for them, <laughs> and, and and it it goes. That's a good point, Bert. This is Rabbi Doctor David Toich has published. A guide to Jewish practice from a Reconstructionist perspective, mm-hmm. right? So this is volume two that has just come out. We all just got it in the mail. Um, so, but this gives this is Mickey. Why? Why do we need this? Why do we need this? We have the Shulchan Aruch. I guess it brings in the uh, experiences that people have had since the last time. Exactly. That's why we need this, because we think differently than the, Shulchan Ar- you know, than the folks who wrote the Shulchan Aruch. Our needs are different. What we need this for is a little different. Right? We need this to think through it, the decisions, not to give us the decisions. Right? That's a new idea in the world of Wait, so it's Jewish codification. It like kind of it, where you are if you need some further explanation of it? Is that what that So is? let's say we're going to look at a kashrut policy around Passover. You know, so we're, we're going to check now a guide to Jewish practice to begin our discussion. Because it's going to bring all of the source material from Bible and Mishnah and all those places and other commentators like Maimonides and Rashi and like all these people and, and bring it into one I'm glad place. to see it's a guide, not a directive. Correct. That's exactly right. That's right. Because, Ruben, that's, that's an important point. We need a guide. The other, other folks have just wanted a directive. Not just. I don't mean to minimize it. But that's a big change. Guide means you're going to be the ultimate arbiter. I'm giving you the background to do that. All right. Shall we look at Torah, do you think? <laughs> Unbelievable. It's good. It's all good. All right. So we're going to hold that in our heads whenever we see... Um, Yaakov, thank you. We're going to thank the people of Israel. Whenever we see Asaph, we're going to thank the people of Edom. Just holding that as another level in our head. All right. Um, there, we're going to start at 2519. This is the story of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took the wife Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padan Aram, sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord responded to his plea, and his wife Rebecca conceived. But the children struggled in her womb, and she said, If so, why do I exist? She went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord answered her, Two nations are in your womb. Two separate peoples shall issue from your body. One people shall be mighty, mightier than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Okay. So, ve'ele toldot Yitzchak, usually translated, these are the generations, right, of Yitzchak, but because we're not going to get a list of begats and begats now, it probably is best translated the stories of. These are the tales, the stories of Yitzchak, ben Avraham, the son of Avraham, 
Avraham halid et Yitzchak. Avraham begot Isaac. Okay, how many times have you heard me say the Torah does not waste words? Somebody tell me the problem. If the Torah doesn't waste words, what's the problem in verse 1? We already have a problem. Huh? Abraham and Sarah begot Isaac. <laughs> okay, that's an omission, uh, but we assume, right, that uh, Sarah is a part of this. Um, science hasn't changed that much in all of these years. What's the written problem here? They write it twice. They write what twice? That, that Abraham is the father. First, that he's that that Isaac is the son of Abraham, and Abraham begot. I guess repeating the same idea twice. Very nice. We want to make sure that uh, he really is the father. <laughs> right? So this is the rabbinic question. The redundancy, right? You don't have redundancy in Torah, God forbid. So w- what is this? Um, so there are, as you can imagine, many explanations in the rabbinic tradition about why we have this written twice. Um, one is that he's the son of Avraham. The other is saying something about his role as being a founder, a successor to the patriarchy. Right? Avraham brings forth Isaac, meaning to be his successor. Right? That they, they, they mean different things. One is that he's the father, and the other you, is something about the patriarch. You know, is this is about succession in a different way. Um, lots of midrash written about this saying what Bert brought up, which is we are going to be extraordinarily clear that Avraham is not just the legal father. If it says Yitzchak is Ben Avraham, Isaac is the son of Avraham, that might just mean that Sarah had the baby and Avraham acknowledges it as his own. That's fine. That works in the ancient world, right? Aha. But we're going to be very, very specific. Avraham holid et Yitzchak. Avraham begat Isaac. What's the difference? The biological connection. Why in the world might there be any issue um, with, with, um, with Avraham being the father of Isaac? He's the father of Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn, so there is a prior son that's an issue. What else? He tried to kill us. He, well, we don't know that. Well, we, don't, we don't know what they were doing. Um, but, but they, uh, oh, Abraham was going was to kill him. Um, so, but he, so saying he begat Isaac, where, where's the doubt? Where would the doubt lie? Okay, so Avraham is, is very, very old, right? So there could be some doubt as to whether or not, because even Sarah says, am I to have a baby with him so old? She doesn't say with me so old, meaning there was no Viagra, right? Like, how is that supposed to happen? Look at him, right? Like, so, so if that rises in her mind, like, possibly other people are thinking that. Think where has Sarah been? Where did Sarah go? She was on her own, right? When you took Isaac up the mountain? <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. But presumably we trust that Sarah would have been at home doing what she was supposed to do. Ha! What happened to Sarah there? Well, the fair, somebody took an interest in her. 
Oh, more than took an interest. Took her into his palace, into Pharaoh and Avimelech. Avimelech took Sarah. So the question might logically follow with Avraham so old and Sarah was liberated from Avimelech. We don't know what happened. How? So this is, then the Midrash says that God understood Abraham's predicament and made Isaac look exactly like Abraham. <laughs> so there should be no doubt in anyone's mind, right, who begat Isaac. So this is a very big deal for, right, for the tradition in general that, that we explain this Department of Redundancy Department. All right. Uh, so, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took to wife Rebecca, daughter of Betuel. We get very little about Isaac, right? We're just getting, he's 40 years old and he takes, you know, we've got the Akedah, and then Rivka's brought to him and he's 40 and he marries Rivka, okay? Um, and we get her lineage so that we know that's through Avraham's line. Right? And he takes her to wife. Let's look at the Hebrew at 21. What does your translation say about Ve'etar? Pleaded. Isaac pleaded with God. Right? Why? No children. Exactly. She is barren. All of the matriarchal narratives involve barrenness. It's a prerequisite. All of them. Think about it. Sarah, Rivka, Rachel. They all involve them being barren. Isn't the idea here that none of this would have happened if God was not in the background doing whatever That's it exactly is that right. God does? That's exactly right. So we have matriarchs and patriarchs through whom it is made clear that God is working God's plan because it is miraculous, their conceptions, right? All right, so... But not immaculate. But not immaculate. <laughs> Certainly not. Absolutely not. So if it was God's plan, why did he have to with him? Ah, so if it was God's plan all along that Rivka become pregnant and carry on the people through... This line, why did Yitzhak have to pray? Ah. So Yitzhak doesn't know that God's plan is for Rivka to conceive. So this is always the tension with an omniscient, omnipotent God. What's our role? Right? If God is all-knowing and all-good, then what the heck does our stuff have to do with it? Right? You know, it's just, it just should happen anyway. Right? So, but Judaism is this wonderful combination of... God's will happens through us, including prayer. All right. So, but it's an excellent question. So, he prays for Rivka to conceive, and she conceives, right? Vatahar Rivka ishto. So she becomes pregnant. Vayidrotsatsu habanim bekirba. What is this business? Somebody read it to me, the Hebrew. 
So now just think about that. Okay, that's the verb we have here. We, you know? We don't really know what it means. It's, we don't know what it means exactly, except, like I said, looking at desire or running or striving or something. Um, now, but what we know is that it is extraordinarily unpleasant for Rebecca. <laughs> right? How do we know this? They're not like... Tandem flipping and somersaulting, like Esther Williams in there, right? <laughs> because she says, Vatomer, and she says, Im ken, if so, meaning we can assume if, if this, Lama ze anochi. What does the Hebrew really mean? Lama, why, ze, this, anochi. Me. The heck does that mean? If this, why this me? What does that mean? Why do I exist? Right. If this is going on, 
why? You know, why exist? You know, like, this is horrible. Why am I the one this is happening to? Why, you know, why me? That's a good Jewish question, right? Why am I chosen? Why am I chosen for this? Really? Yes. Because uh, it's, it, and she had twins in her belly, exclamation mark. <laughs> like she didn't know that. <laughs> or, right? Well, or, or everybody is impressed. Right. This is the first time. So, well, and, and another thing to know is that in the ancient world, twins were not a good thing. Why? Uh, it was a, uh, it was unusual and therefore... Scary, what not good. Triplets? You mean giving birth or even both? Japan, but even but, in Japan today, twins are considered bad luck. It's like that's right. animalistic having a whole brood litter. Litter. Uh, yes, it's it's not seen positively in the ancient world. If you think she had maybe with Isaac, where he also, if you think that Abraham tried to kill him, in the seed itself, it must have been some some sort of a we can count on Diane to go to the heart of the mythic power of this story that in Isaac's seed is already deep conflict about family relationships. So he, he, he gives seed to, Yitzchak, uh, to Yaakov and his seed goes to Esau and they are in the same belly. And if his seed is all about now conflict, right? What's going on in her? It's completely enigmatic, I mean, completely emblematic of Yitzchak's life. Beautiful. What we know, but she doesn't know while she's experiencing all this, she doesn't know there's twins in there. But in verse 22, it's the plural, at least in the English, but the children struggled in her womb. Right, that's the narrator who knows everything. <laughs> Rebecca, no, I mean, seriously, like, we have an um, omniscient narrator here, right? So, Miss Ryder, so, um, right, the, the, the author, the narrator knows everything. This is the same problem when we get to the Moses text that says Moses went out to his Hebrew kinsmen, and people want to say, see, he knew he was a Hebrew. I'm like, there, that does not indicate that Moses knows he's a Hebrew. It's the narrator who knows those are Moses' kin, right? Because you, you all know I love the other version where Moses doesn't know he's a Hebrew. He acts out of what he considers to be morally and ethically right, meaning he allies himself with the oppressed. But anyway. Our own duality. I digress. What? Our own personal duality within ourselves. Okay, so Diane is already preempting the rabbis. Um, so they're doing something, but she doesn't know what's happening. Oh, what does she know? You're pregnant. You've prayed to be pregnant. Now you've got all this going on. What are your first thoughts? Something's wrong. Something's very wrong. This is not the normal experience of pregnancy that she has seen around her. A gentle quickening. Oh, I felt the baby move, right? Like it's, you can imagine if she gets big, right? If you've ever seen twins in somebody's belly, like there's some funky stuff that goes on, right? That you can see. So... She doesn't know what's going on, but all we know is that she says, if so, why maybe do I even exist? Some people believe there's a hand motion here. There's a word missing because she makes a hand motion. 
in this part of the statement? If so, just kill me. Like, Lama Zet, why this to me? I mean, like, that she does something with her hands, because there's a word missing. What's the Zet? Why this? What, you know, why this me? Like, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. So, I want to focus on this. And she goes, and what does she do? What, what is her response to this crisis? What does she do? Really? Really? She goes to talk to God. Really? How does one go talk to God? Everywhere else, what have we seen? God appears. God speaks. God sends an angel. God sends a messenger. Rebecca goes lidrosh ladonai, goes to ask God, what's up? We don't know where she went. Where does she? How do you go ask God what's going on? Right? Clearly, there's a tradition that Rivka knows how to do that. Rivka knows how to access the divine wisdom that she needs. There's lots of women who are looking at the Rivka material, right, as, as an example of, of the, the remnant idea, the remnant idea, the, the remnants of powerful, powerful women who were prophets, right, who, original, or priestesses. The original lean-in. The original lean-in. Thank you. So most of them are patriarchs, but we have examples, right, of Rivka, who already, if you remember the description of Rebecca that we talked about last year when we studied Rebecca, remember? Na'ar, she's called a Na'ar. She's called a youth masculine. It's missing the hay. She's called youth, Na'ar, not Na'ara. So already there's something about Rivka that's not normative. She's strong. Right? She's, she's, she plays both roles in a way. Both, she crosses gender lines in some ways. And here's more evidence that she clearly, right, there's a tradition where Rivka has access to the divine. All right, so. The thing about being pregnant, too, that gets her a step closer to that as well. That okay. That being in that different state of creating, you know, growing people inside her gets her, like, I should go talk to God when I'm like this, you know. Um, so usually one would do something, and, and this word to, you know, inquire of God suggests anguish, right? You, you don't go to ask God about the weather tomorrow afternoon. You know, if you go, Lidosh et Adonai, you're going because you're in deep anguish, and, and need, you know, and need some kind of an answer. Uh, and so, you know, does she, does she go to, to get an oracle? You know, does she go somewhere where she can receive an oracle? We don't know. Um, we really don't know. But what we know is it works. Right? She, whatever she does, it's effective. Because the next line is, Vayomer Adonai la, and God said to her, God speaks directly to Rivka in answer to her question. That gets skipped over. Right? That's pretty intense. God answers her. Right? We skip over that. 
It's like, wow, really? A lot of the patriarchs are waiting around, right? Yaakov has to incubate a dream. He has to lay on a rock and incubate a dream in order to get the information he needs. Rivka just goes and asks, whatever that means. And what does God say to her? Shnei goyim bevitnech. Two nations are in your belly. Two peoples will burst forth from your body, from within you. Right? Same thing that was said to Abraham's generation. Which was? Ishmael Ishmael and Isaac. Will will be two nations. So this is not new for us. These are our patriarchal narratives that also talk about the relationships between Israel and other peoples that she is among. They are cousins, right? We have lost some of this understanding today, but this is our foundational story, and it is that we are cousins with those peoples. We are relatives. We don't share the same unique destiny and path. Everyone has their own, but we are related. So, and there's a word that's printed lightly. Yeah. I re- <laughs> we talked about those before. I don't yes, creative, right? So this is called a creative, meaning what is what is written is not what we read when we read it out loud. A creative means something is wrong with the way it's written, it should be written the way you see it printed below in little letters. So does everybody see what we're talking about? No. No. Verse 23, different volumes represent it differently. In the green book, I believe, the women's Torah commentary, I believe it's written in a lightly shaded gray. Yes? I don't know what the red book does. What does Eitzchayim do? It's just smaller. And Eitzchayim, the type is smaller. Yes, goyim. What is, and what is that called? Nations. Oh, kriktiv, meaning you kri means read, ktiv means written. So you read something different than what's written. So when we read Torah out loud, we read the little word that's printed underneath the paragraph. At least that's that's how it's done in my book. In my book, you have the paragraph. And then you have this little bitty word down here, which is how you're supposed to read the word. So are they saying that there's a mistake? Oh! <laughs> That's what I'm Chas v'shalom. I know, I know. That's why I'm v'chalila. Chalila, chalila. So, um, right, so it, it is now preserved as the scribal tradition. Right. God forbid there should be a mistake. Um, so we read what probably is a mistake. Right? Um, so it is with Rebecca. It says na'ar, but we read na'ara. We assume it's a scribal error that the hay fell off to make her a feminine youth. Right? That's our assumption. But it's an awfully tempting place to go. What if it's not? So what is the word that we so don't if it's read? it's not, what does that imply? We read goyim. Right. So but the word that's... In the Torah, correct. It's Gim. So this is why this is a pretty straightforward one. 
because the word that, that we're reading is goyim, right? Goyim, people, from goy, nation, right? What we have printed is this, right? So what is the difference between this word and this word in the middle? Because these are the same on the ends. What's the difference in the middle? The two yuds versus a vav and a yud. This is important. Why? How does it happen? You copy a text over enough times with scribes who do just a little too much or a little too little, and what happens? Is that a vav or a yud? Eventually, somebody reads it like that. That's how those errors happen, right? But what? But what's the, the implication? I mean, you know, what? I don't know what the two words are. are they two they different words different that mean? Things. That's what I mean. If they mean different things, so what is this? It? Isn't a word. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. Sorry. Oh, that's, that. that's what I wanted. This is not a word. This is gym. This is g y y m. within each and every one of us. They are both to be used in the service of God. God. So, Creek tea can sometimes be a very fun and happy thing, right? <laughs> to play with. Um, so, right, this is the name of God in Hebrew. And so we've already talked about, she's got within her, because the rabbis, of course, are going to make Yaakov the good inclination, and Esav, the evil inclination, both are within her, both are within us, and we are commanded to use them both in the service of Adonai, of God. Oh, 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 now you're killing me. So Laura says, if you take the letters that are left, Gimel and Mem, it spells Gam, which means also. The good, <laughs> the good one, and also the bad one. Both of them together to serve. Oh, that's okay. We got to take a picture of that. I don't think I've ever heard anything like that. That is awesome. I only said half of that. All right. So just go with it. Just take it. So this. So this idea that there are two within her that are going to burst forth, that language, you know, of bursting forth is used in the Abraham narrative. It's used about how the people Israel are going to burst forth to the east and the west and the north and the south. This word is about busting out, busting onto the scene, right, with vigor and with dynamism and with vitality, right? Here it says just branch off. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for throwing a bucket of cold water on that, Reuben. Here it just says to branch off. Okay. Um, but Aviva Zorenberg explores that word and, and really busts open that word um, in terms of its, its 
implications, which are interesting. So we get this description. What time are we at? How did, how did we get to this place? We haven't even talked about the twins. 1042. 10.42. Huh? All right, so let's go chick-chock because that will give you something to take home to read. Chick-chock. So uh, someone read at 24. Chick-chock. When her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first one emerged red, like a hairy mantle all over. So they named him Esau. Then his brother emerged, holding onto the heel of Esau. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. Go on. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the outdoors. But Jacob was a mild man who stayed in camp. Isaac favored Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebecca favored Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the open, famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Give me some of that red stuff to gulp down, for I'm famished, which is why he was named Edom. Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I'm at the point of death, so what uses my birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob then gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank, and he rose and went away. Thus did Esau spurn the birthright. All right. So she gives birth. There were, whoa, yo, twins, right, in her, in her womb. The first one emerged red like a hairy mantle all over. So they named him Esav. Why? Red. <laughs> um, Edom is red. Esav. Right? So this... Uh, we're not sure. <laughs> so, um, we... Shaggy. You know, with the, there may be this way of, of it being something about being shaggy. There's one that it means an actual mantle to cover or to envelop. Um, as, from the verb to... Uh, make, Asa, is that he was fully, like, he was more developed at birth. You know, he had all the hair and all that. We, we're not really sure. Um, uh, but some link it with Seir instead of Esav, right? That it's Seir from Se'ar, hair. All right, so Esav comes out. Admoni, and that is going to lead to, of course, his name, Edom. A couple of things do, right? How did the elephant get its trunk? One way is he's all ruddy and red. The other one is that he's going to ask for that red, red stuff. <laughs> right? All right, so um, he emerges, and then his brother emerged, holding on to... Ochezet... Ba'akev Esav. He is holding on to the Akev of Esav. Yaakov. Ha! Reuben. You get the gold star. Well, maybe, actually. The red star. Because Laura's already got a star. <laughs> He's holding on to the Akev. Right? of his brother. One who does that, put a yud, and what have you got? Yaakov. How did Yaakov get his name? Right, he comes out, Yaakov, the one who ankle-fies. <laughs> right? So, 
What what do you think what does that mean? The firstborn gets everything in the ancient world. Everything. What is a twin who's born second who ankylifies? He's becoming a part of the first. Hmm? He's hanging on to him. It's like what do you call that? He's going for it. He's going for it. Yeah, yeah. Yaakov He's like, is not so fast. Not so fast. Yeah. Nice. Not so fast. You may come out first, but he is hanging right onto his ankle. Try, is the image of trying to pull him back, right? Or don't think you're going anywhere, I'm not coming. Yeah. Right? Like, huh, we are one. Nice. Nice, Lois. So we are one. Don't think you're going to be the firstborn and I'm going to be some schlepper. Uh-uh. Our destiny is we are one unit here. This is not over. And they've been wrestling. And they've been wrestling the whole time. They come out the same way they were in. You got to come out one at a time. That's the only way to come out. You mean they're wrestling in the womb? Yeah. So they come out the same way with Yaakov hanging onto the heel, hanging onto the ankle. This is their relationship forever until. So Esau becomes a skillful hunter. And what does it say about Yaakov? He was a mild man who stayed home. He was a mild man who stayed home. He was a dweller in tents who stayed home. So he was, for the rabbis, this is proof that he was a yeshiva bucher. <laughs> what did Yaakov do? He's the stereotypic nebbish yeshiva bucher. He stayed home. Of course he stayed home. He was learning Torah. All day. He learned all day. Asaph, he was, you know, out there doing, you know, four-wheeling and, you know, monster trucking and using a chainsaw. We talked about ruddy, it, that ruddy complexion, some, sometimes ruddy was a good thing. David was described as being ruddy. He was staying home plotting, says Linda, right? He was... He was hanging out. around, figuring out while Asaph's gone. Hmm, right? Rabbi, what can I do? there's a comment here that says uh, Yaakov could also be read and translated as he will act crookedly. He will act crookedly. Thus, it's often translated as the usurper. You know, like that he, that the hanging on to the ankle is like, is usurping someone's yeah. position. You know, you take them out of where they're standing and you... You're looking to supplant them. That's often how it's translated. Mickey? Would there be any connection between the Parshat uh, Akev in the uh, mm-hmm. It What's the connection? The spelling of uh, Akev and Yaakov. I'd have to, I'd, I mean, I, I'm sure they're related. I, we would have to do the Midrash. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? On. Yeah. So you can write that for next week. Mm-hmm. You write the Midrash. What's the connection, right, between this and... Akev in Deuteronomy. Richard? Is there any um, wordplay involved, <laughs> writing involving wordplay with the Yah at the beginning of Yaakov and the El at the end of Israel, um, that they're both God terms? Well, the, the problem is we're missing the hay for Yaakov. There's, but right? Isn't, but isn't Yah, isn't in, isn't Yah sometimes? Yud-Hey. Oh, Yud-Hey. Okay. Yeah. But L for sure. Right. 
that's the meaning. You can't have the name Yisrael right, right. So without God being so part so of that. The yah in Yaakov is not really I haven't seen it, but possibly they, you know, they add the yud, you know, that the yud is about relationship to God. Um, so he's hairy. Jacob is smooth, right? So already we have a distinction between them. One is in the field, doing, going. We talked about this in the womb. Running, going, doing, active in the world. What is Jacob? He's smooth. Usurping. He's usurping. He's smooth. He's sitting. He's a smooth operator. He's sitting at home. He's not acting in the world. Aviva Zorenberg, I'm going to give it to you to take home and read. Aviva Zorenberg has a wonderful, a wonderful way of looking at this as being Yaakov isn't anything right now. Yaakov is just there. Well, he's mama's boy. He's mama's boy. He's mama's boy. And it's mama, Linda, who puts him, this time it's him, but mama puts him up to the next one, doesn't she? And she says, it, the way we usually interpret it, I don't want to spend too long on it because it's not for today, but, but I'm going to set up Aviva Zorenberg for you. Is it that Aviva Zorenberg suggests that the way we normally read that is Rivka says to him, pretend to be Asaph. Put on goat skin, you know what I mean, and get hairy because your father might touch you. And so go pretend to be your brother. And Zornberg says that is not what Rivka's saying. Rivka's saying is become something. Do something. Asav is out there. Asav is doing. His father loves his game. He is successful. He is the big man out there. We usually read him as lumbering, you know, because that's our Jewish tradition. That's our already inherited interpretation. But if you just look at the text, he's effective. When they're struggling and running and pushing and desiring, it's Esau who fulfills his desires. It's Esau who has desires. What is Jacob doing? Nothing. And what, he's a blank slate. And Rivka is saying, not pretend to be Esau. Get some hair. <laughs> right? Like, man up. Exactly. Man up. Go into your father and you serve him game. You give him something that he wants. Esau's always doing it while you sit around on the couch playing video games. Go, make, you know, go take this dude to your father and earn his blessing. And, and the mystical tradition reads that when Yaakov says, uh-oh, but I could get in trouble for pretending to be Esav, right? It's Yaakov, the spiritual, saying, if I take that on, if I take on worldly concerns like success, will it ruin me? And I'll draw on myself a curse and not a blessing. Do you remember this line from the story? He's afraid if his father feels him all hairy and figures out that he's pretending He'll get a curse instead of a blessing. And the mystical tradition says that is Yaakov worried. That if I become somebody who's concerned with material things and material success, I'll, what I'm going to get is a curse instead of a blessing. I'm going to fall, right, to some level that I don't want to go to. And what Rivka says to him is not to worry. I got your back. It's not going to happen. I'll be here. You're not going to fall. You will be fine. You need to take your spiritual, lovely, smooth, sinless self 
and go engage yourself in the world. And that, what do you think the teaching is from the rabbis from that? What's, what's the lesson for us? Action versus... Action, tikkun olam. Sitting in contemplation is lovely, Yaakov. But that's not where it's at, ultimately. You have to take that out in the world and act. That's how this people continues. That's how this world gets repaired. That's what matters. Don't worry. It'll be all right. But you got to go out there and you got to take your spiritual lovely self and risk it in the world. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.